When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Nineteen ninety-nine. Pulling over the Fremont Bridge for the first time in the dark. The city lights of Portland are all lit up. And an old familiar feeling came back to me that I hadn't felt since I was a teenager. It's one of certain crushing insignificance. Knowing that you are really just nothing. To such a deep level, I didn't identify it as a sickness or a complex or a neurosis. I just knew that the truth was, in a transparent sense, that I was insignificant. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just the way things are. But day in and day out, there was no escaping that. Maybe... I had forgotten about it for the second half of college and been distracted from it in LA. And that held a certain kind of special humiliation to it because in college I had established a ground. By the end of it, I felt strong and so happy to be alone with kind of no context at all. Like the most empowering feeling of aloneness I could ever conceive of. And now here I am in my truck, pulling up into a city that doesn't really want me there. And I'm supposed to sort of impose my stupid little reality on this community in some way. Something, I just didn't want to do that. I didn't want to face myself on earth. I wanted to just be free and sort of bask in that freedom. But there was one problem with that formula, and it's that there was a deep promise down in my brain made to me by me as a little kid that I was supposed to become a musician. A totally unfortunate promise, a really inconvenient one for someone who doesn't want to get their hands dirty with the reality of engaging with the world. And what that is, what's happening there, is that someone is truly admitting their deep spiritual laziness. I remember the exact lethargy. I remember thinking, this mountain is so insanely steep, and it is so unlikely that I can even get a hold in its side that 
there's no way it's worth trying to do this. And a lot of times in your life, you're going to be right. You're going to know what's too dangerous or what makes no sense in terms of efficiency if you're looking up a steep incline that's just going to throw you back down onto the jagged rocks. You ought to trust that instinct, right? Because nobody wants to head into certain economic failure or physical failure or a relationship with the worst red flags ever. You need to trust yourself. But behind me was such a raging tsunami of insignificance. Like if I turned around, I would just be evaporating myself. At least in front of me, I didn't know what was going to happen. But if I went back home, there was something so insanely pathetic about that that I actually couldn't even face that idea. Where I came from, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, I knew no one was going to help me. I'm not theorizing. I knew it. And for some reason, I had to make it harder on myself to come around the side of the mountain to some sort of back entrance where there was a kind of traction that I could make for myself. I mean, it's all clear to me now because I didn't fucking die so I can spin it into a happy tale, I guess. But my obsession is with the failure because that's the interesting part. That's where everything comes from. I know it sounds so fucking trite, but two little boys on a couch looking at each other admiring each other playing guitar for one another that's what becomes Lennon and McCartney it's just these two little motherfuckers doing essentially nothing at first and then you magnify it and magnify it and magnify it but we all come from nothing it's where everything sprouts up and there's an immediate moral to that it's that If you don't let yourself be wildly transparent, if you don't accept that crushing nothingness, if you don't wade in the waters of deep insignificance and you rush to get out of it, you rush to escape to something that is more efficient, makes more sense, will inevitably lead to more success, you're gonna miss the boat on the spiritual core of your own uniqueness the actual imprint that you are in the universe. Anyone can make the smart decision. Anyone can follow the steps that lead you towards the success that someone else has had. But only you can shock people with who you really are if you can find out what the fuck that is. But that's going to take so much time so much work if someone had told me someone might hear this song you're working on today in 23 years you know I would have fucking just started making a noose there's no way a young person can understand that they're making a song for someone to hear in 23 fucking years dude but that's the reality of my life I knew that I would never be a fashionable person. I knew that I would never be in step with popular fashion, popular thought. 
It's not a fucking theory, dude. People would tell me, oh, just wait. Just give it six months. Fuck off. They were wrong. (laughs) To this day, I'm outside of everybody. Nobody includes me. Are you fucking kidding? But I had to create a world in which that didn't matter. Like most kids, I probably started on this path way before I understood the consequences. So by the time I wake up in Portland, I'm just now realizing what I've gotten myself into. What I expect from other people who I shouldn't expect anything from. Fame is essentially this massive coordination of many people. And the only reason for them to get involved with you is because they're gonna make money off of you. These are realities I'd never even posited. I'd never put all this together. I had come from a time where everything seemed so grassroots that you would just see Ian Mackay on stage just like you might have seen Richie Havens in a park playing on a stage, like just people wandering up to it. We were wandering into this thing together. But once I saw it up close, I was like, know there's mechanics to this entire fucking thing that I probably despise. If I had stayed at home, there was only one way that anything could have worked out. And that would have been for some incredibly wise person to come out of the woodwork and pick me up and say, you've got a lot of good ideas, but let's sit down and reconfigure them And I didn't have that kind of help. I wanted it from my guru in Boston. I mean, he gave me his sound to take and use. He was generous, but I don't think he was emotionally well enough to consider being in a mutual relationship with other people in the world where he could be an entertainer. That was just not his interest. I think he was maybe closer to some sort of terrorist, like someone up in a tower with a sniper rifle destroying music and reusing it into a kind of super selfish, beautiful, poetic street form. I think I would have given anything to be him. He couldn't play all the instruments or any of that stuff, but like, I didn't care about that. That wasn't getting me anywhere. It was the fact that he had his own sound. It was so hard to think of something so drastically original that what he had was like, I'd pay millions for that kind of thinking. Our greatest leaders at the time didn't seem to have as much pithy, raw uniqueness as him. So I was just like, you won, dude, this is crazy. You've got that in your hands? But I can't explain how little he gave a shit about that. I think because the wealth of it would be appreciated by other people and the experience of joy it would bring would be experienced by other people. And other people were really kind of insignificant themselves. He was kind of shining through the world with this like magic in his hands. And I don't mean it in a pretentious sense, but he just seemed kind of uninterested in them. Like, to get up on a stage and have the lights come down and to sing them a little song, to him, I think, looked like a slave's job. And 
I think I wanted to be that slave. I was a little fucking kid. I wanted to experience that kind of creative opportunity. And he made me feel like that was pretty idiotic. So I thought, oh, well, something's wrong here. Between us and this idea, there is a dissonance. I wanted to play with no one in the world but him. But it wasn't going to happen. I mean, he didn't have to say it. It was just, it was obvious. It's safe to say, you know, that I never found another him. And he hid from you. All I knew was that I had seen it, the real thing. I knew it was real now. I could see Fugazi on stage or Sebado on stage when I was a little kid, and I'd be like, whatever magic is happening in the ESP between these people is something I don't think I'll ever experience with other people. I've never met someone who I could celebrate that kind of dark energy with. But bam, now I've got the person, and he's beyond all of them in his weird way. But he can do it alone, and he doesn't even need to show it to anybody. For my 16th birthday, I went in the studio. I recorded the songs I had written that week, and... You know, I put the tape down when I got home and tried to listen to it once and had no use for it. I didn't even identify it as something I had made. I was just like, this is not good. It didn't sound like what I had gone in there to do. I didn't know how to make what I wanted to do. I had to admit to myself that there was a long way to go. I had gotten a band together with my two stoner buddies and we got one show at the local club playing with my ex-girlfriend and maybe like the guitar teacher down from the fucking music shop. One show at the local club. One. And I'm sure that the fear inside me was just radiating Not because I didn't know what to do with my hands and my feet, but because I knew that I was going to be judged. That was the atmosphere of Chapel Hill. That's what we were known for. I mean, like, people would remark in coming through town, like Kim Gordon or something, would talk about how we would just all have our arms folded and just not move. It was just like the skeptic jazz mind town. So it was a pretty tough zone, and I got up there, and the one bit of feedback I remember hearing after the show was that my girlfriend had overheard the guy next to her say, you can't do that. And I was like, you know, you're probably right. I guess you can't. Because I'd played another friend a tape of mine, and they'd also said the same words. You can't do that. I'm not talking about some fucking Muhammad Ali story where, like, you rise up in power. They were trying to tell me this isn't working. It just sounded like someone who couldn't get enough of themselves. The celebration of someone who loved masturbating. And whether or not I knew they were right, I think I knew they were right. I needed to start all the way over again. Somewhere. 
But by the time I come over that bridge in Portland, it's like my head came above water and I was exposed. Ugh, I felt so uncomfortable. I'm cold as winter And so let down You didn't know to leave me On my own We went so far Along the road I want you so badly And you know you know I can't take it much longer
So over the course of the Drifter Sympathy story, there's a couple people that have been left out. And one of the central players was a very old friend of mine named James, who was officially the first person that ever believed in me. We met in like sixth grade in rainbow soccer. We ended up in the jazz band in high school together and our bands would kind of war against each other for shows. He was sort of in like the hippie band and I was in the straight edge hardcore band. And then we didn't see each other for years and years and years and we preserved our memories of each other in a kind of mythological storage. You hope you see someone like that again, but you just don't know if you ever will. But James actually reappeared in my life, moved out to Portland, and put out my first two records, which, you know, you kind of got to pray that you end up having a friend like James. He just trusted me and wanted to see where this would all go. There was really no success to speak of. It was really, really hard, just crushing. And I think he'll tell his version of the story, which is fascinating to me because he's a keeper of a totally different objective knowledge about what we did together. And I had even forgotten that he knew Ron and he's the other person that Ron took to the Grateful Dead show with me. Even when my mom had paid for me to go record my first record when I was 16, James had been at that session. It just seems like he was always there. So I thought I would actually learn something if I asked him about all those early years. We had this great connection in high school. We would just collect music and talk about music and, and listen to music together. And you were a real kindred spirit for me. So Chapel Hill was kind of a nationally known indie rock scene that I was completely ignorant of. It, when I was in high school, I was, I was into like radio rock, Aerosmith, Rush, shredding van halen like those were my commanding heights but then there was a couple of college bands in chapel hill in the early 90s like the connells would play like pretty big parties that if you were in high school you could probably fake your way into and so the idea that guys in my town were making real records was like unbelievably inspirational but i think one of the unique things about chapel high was there was like a band scene in the high school you were starting to write songs on your guitar and they were really interesting. You would teach them to me because you wanted to record them and you had this whole band concept. And I remember your mom helped us get some studio time and like some of the other local bands recorded there. We had the Cat's Cradle and we had uh, Super Chunk and they had started their own label and the guys worked at the record store we shopped at. It was very aspirational and to, yeah. to, to think that like, you're on the radio and now you're on this tape and now it's like you're in you're getting gigs in the cast there was all these ways to kind of like plug in it just seemed wide open so that was really exciting much more exciting than just like rolling stone magazine and you know whatever it seemed really tangible and also at this time you brought me into your world with ron <laughs> I remember Ron was a known substitute teacher at Chapel High School. Like he would like every now and then he would, you would show up and Ron would be like the teacher. <laughs> and like, he was always cool. And maybe it was like in a parking lot after school, 
like you and I were like hanging out in the parking lot and Ron cruises out and then you start just like haranguing him. <laughs> like you start just like talking trash. And I was just like, oh my God, Emil, like that guy's like a teacher. That's amazing. <laughs> and you know, he would have just sassed right back in the most like childish way. It became pretty clear that you and him were uh, were friends, but I didn't know. I was just like, man, that's crazy. Emil, you're, you're you're crazy, like just talking, talking to the grown-ups like this. But then you were like, this is Ron. He's like my friend, like, and he lives down the street from me. And like, I've known him forever or something like that. It became clear that he was like, you really knew him. And then at some point you were like, let's go to Ron's house. And he lived by himself. He had his own house that he lived by himself. And his record collection, his CD collection was like off the charts. And I just remember he like schooled us so hard on music. And he had seen so many concerts. I think I was listening to like Van Halen or something. He's like, I saw Van Halen open for Black Sabbath in 1978. And like they blew Black Sabbath off the stage. And I was like, what? Also, he was a legitimate deadhead. Like he would do substitute teaching and he would save up money and he would do like a six week tour with the Grateful Dead. I think he must have done that for a few years. He was a true music head, just like me and you. Like, like that was the thing is like, he was so helpful for our development. And also in 1993, the Grateful Dead came and played at the Dean Smith Center. He like took us on a field trip to the Dead Show. It was just like me, you and Ron went to see the dead. And Ron was such a deadhead. He had like a notepad out and he was like, he would write down the songs as they played so he could like catalog it. And he would get, ex I remember they played Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and he was like, they never do this. Like Ron was really psyched. And they played Box of Rain, which is a Phil Lesh song. Ron was like, he's like, they rarely play this song. Cause apparently that he wrote that song about his father dying. It was like the anniversary of his death or something that day. And like Phil like played Box of Rain. And it was like Ron like knew all this like backstory stuff about what was happening. That really made a huge impression on me. He was he was a really important part of our musical development, probably our personal development too, I would say. I might have technically been straight edge or just coming out of being straight edge when I went to the show. So all of the kind of older women just really drunk and twirling and just like the drug atmosphere was, I, I couldn't navigate it very well. I didn't understand what was happening. Everybody seemed like they were on heavy meds or something. That's another thing about you and I's relationship is that you were straight edge. You were very healthy and just like high energy. I mean, I come from a pretty traditional household. I was expected to get good grades. I was expected to go to college. Like I had like, I was expected to toe the line, you know? And, and so whenever I was going to like a party or around someone's like, hey, my parents are out of town, let's like get loaded. I was always really uncomfortable with that. And I, I, I would get stressed out. I just didn't go that direction at that time. And so you and I, I could always count on you to like not be involved in that as well which was, I don't know when you turned the corner, but like you got really into drugs and like partying. I went away for, for college and like came back and you were, it was your senior year of high school and you were just like totally getting hammered. <laughs> I just remember like seeing you out on Franklin Street and you were like, what's up? You were just like, <laughs> you're drunk. And you were like, dude, I'm totally into getting drunk now. Like, let's get drunk tonight. And I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> no thanks. 
I mean, I went off to my college thing and then you went to college too. Then you went to Warren Wilson, which I was always like totally shocked by. I didn't really ever see you as like a student of anything but music, you know? And Warren Wilson was just like, my cousin went there and he was always like a struggler. His parents had to send him to all these different schools. It just seemed like a place for like wayward youth or something. I don't know. No, that seems about right. My mom had taken me to ASU and we had gone into the admissions office and I'd had some sort of Ferris Bueller moment where they just looked down at my numbers and looked up at me and were like, you're never going to go to college, basically. I probably didn't care, right? But it's pretty humiliating. You know, you're like, society says that you really have no use to us. And you don't like hearing that to your face. And then I walked away from that. And so when I think my mom had done some research and found out that Warren Wilson essentially took people without looking at their grades. Right. And the way I look at that now is that they just wanted your money. But back then we thought of it as like, oh, this is a really loose, progressive atmosphere. (laughs) And people would whisper, that's a drug school, you know? So I was like, well, I mean, if it's going to (laughs) happen, then I guess it's going to happen this way. I didn't really hear from you after that, you know? You went off to, to college. And then I think a year or two later, I bumped into Ron at Chapel Hill and I asked about you. And I was like, hey, have you heard from Emil? I haven't seen him in a while. Ron's like... James, it's really bad. Emil is totally on drugs, (laughs) smoking crack. (laughs) And his mom and I don't know what to do. I don't know. I'm not sure if you're ever going to see him again, James. Like he basically told me, he like prepared me to like never see you again. And then I was kind of like that. That's probably not true. But then I bumped into you at the food lion like a year after that, and you had like hair down to your ass, buying like a case of like Schlitz. Like it was just like really, my mom sent me to the food line to grab like some milk. Like it was, in the, I was just there to grab a thing. And then I saw you and you were like drunk <laughs> and like hanging out with these like total wild gang kids or something. And I, I was just like, hey, like it was, it was, it was really shocking. And kind and like, and I, I was, thinking about all these things that Ron had told me and then seeing, and I was like, man, Ron was right. Emil's in big trouble. Like, this is bad. And then I didn't see you again. Then that summer of 19, must've been 1999. I think you had come back from school and I bumped into you at a show at the Cat's Cradle. I was there and I think it was maybe Built to Spill. And I bumped into you near like the, 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 the soundboard in the middle and your hair was short. You were totally sober. You looked just like I remembered you, and I was just like, oh my God, like, you're back. Like, and and you were like super healthy at that time. I remember you were like, yeah, I'm really into like being healthy again. And I remember like just being so thrilled to reconnect with you, having not seen you for years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after you you talking about lo-fi music, like, Crooked Rain comes out and I like kind of click in with Pavement and then I backfilling a lot of the stuff that you were into and starting to kind of get a little bit of an understanding. Like I kind of all converged and connected for me. But then I bumped into you and you were like, you, you were most excited about the like prank phone calls you and Duncan had been doing. And so you were, <laughs> we listened to a lot of that in my car. And then you were like, but here's some other stuff I was doing. And you handed me a CD with like 40 songs on it or something. And I was just like, oh my God. This is the next phase. 
why would you have taken that CDR I gave you so seriously when you hadn't really connected with lo-fi before? Like, why did that CDR seem to make sense to you, you think? It was powerful. If we put a band behind this and you were the front person and singing these songs, like, this is as good as anything. It's all there. Like, all we got to do is just sort of, like, develop it. So for, for me, as like a not a songwriter, but someone who was like an appreciator and like an editor was kind of my role. I would be like, that song's good. That song's not good. There's a level of commitment in the vocal performance that I think is pretty unique. And I just remember being like, this is weird, but good. And I just trusted you completely. What a rare, amazing thing for someone to come into your life and truly get underneath you, support you, and say that they want to see what will happen if they put some money, time, and energy into you. And yet, at the same time, now, every bit of shit that you have talked through your whole life how you could have done this and that and better than that person. Every little fucking soapbox you got on. Now it's time to show the goods to the world. And the world is a busy place. It would rather take more time out to laugh at you than pat you on the back. Maybe some delusional people who believe they are the next Mark Twain are lucky that they never get a chance because their ego dream would just get so dramatically shattered, just destroyed in front of them. Or maybe they'd find out that that's just the beginning of becoming a good artist. None of this stuff was really real to me until I pulled over that bridge and saw those lights in Portland, Oregon. And then the truth just smacks you in the face. You know, you can't have anything in life without engaging with the parts of the world that you never wanted to touch or be abused by. This is it. You can't take anything without giving. And your own expectation is like a fucking cancer. Like the promises you made to yourself are like a train coming straight at your face. You engineered this level of expectation. It's going to destroy you if things don't go right. When I pulled up to my girlfriend's address, a door opened and she immediately looked different. Like she was more tan, hair was different. She seemed really happy, but like happy to be there without me. <laughs> like she was smiling too big. Like she had been having a great time and what was I doing there? But the funny thing about that is, was I being defensive the moment I entered into a foreign land? I must have been so naive because it had never occurred to me that the Northwest was gonna be a different culture. The sense of humor was completely different. Everybody's dressing totally different. The music is totally different. Everybody's looking at me like I'm kind of crazy. I had been floating in a deep 
anti-fashion vat of not caring about the idea of like looking good or anything like that. You know, I, I thought I was like a punk, but it's funny I would use that word because that word seemed really dead to me and everybody was using that word in the Northwest. Everybody was talking about punk music. I was like, punk music? What the fuck? What's that now? So even if you have like, you know, this great depth of experience, entering a new zone immediately reflects back to you things about yourself that just hadn't occurred to you. Like, I've been living in the mountains of North Carolina for four years. I mean, there was like no youth culture up there. So it's almost like I'm a fossil. The fact that people were using the word punk immediately like threw me off. I was like, what, you like the sex pistols? But really like back before the internet, we on the East Coast, we didn't hear about the Northwest music scene. I had literally never heard of any of the bands there. Clearly I'm talking about the regional underground scenes, not fucking grunge or whatever. But the internet wasn't giving you a microscope into the kind of boiling kettle of what kids were celebrating in these little crevices. So when you arrived from 3,000 miles away, it's almost like you're speaking Polish. Being 22 is a pretty intrinsically combative age. It felt like everybody around you is completely sure they're a fucking genius. I mean, the porch of every house party was a total battlefield of absurd opinions. And you look at yourself and you think, I am no better. I'm a fucking dick with a bunch of insane, hardcore opinions about bullshit. But at that age, you can't fake development that you haven't had. And although you think you know everything in the world, it wasn't that long ago that you just got a driver's license, you know? And it wasn't that long ago before that that you got your first fucking toy. And at that time, my impulse response was probably to just get as drunk as possible and just beat everyone away with the most acrid sarcasm possible. But it really wasn't working, and everybody would let me know that, too. It's one thing to feel out of place, but to feel truly unapplicable. Not needed, but then to not be able to admit that you need them, the people in the world that you push away. It was a new equation for me. sitting in my Taoist teacher's office, just kind of thinking, you know, these guys are paid to listen to us, and now nobody's paid to listen to you anymore. I think I'd been shuttled through life, like when I walked up to the comedy store and the, the manager saw the clothes I was wearing and my haircut, and he just handed me the management keys. That 
is white privilege. <laughs> Why did he do that? I looked the part like I was shuttled through life. And now I was kind of sitting on a porch with the Milwaukee's best in my hand, kind of realizing that I was nothing to any of these people or, or anyone in the world, you know? And to make something in music that anyone would have time for to sit down and pay attention to, the person making it would have to be interesting. They would have to be of some depth and value. And if you don't feel interested in yourself and you sincerely feel like a piece of shit, why would you take a second of anyone else's time? I think other people would have just gone home. It wasn't a measure of integrity that I stayed. I just, home just seemed the same. I started getting packages from my Boston guru. He's like, cheer up, sucker. In every package, there'd be like two or three cassette tapes with the strangest audio I'd ever heard. I'd open them up quickly and run up into the attic and put them into the tape player, kind of preserving my old world from the East Coast that I used to live in and continuing the story that I used to have before I dropped out and then ended up on Mars. And these tapes were immediately, I guess, disappointing because my guru wasn't making music so much. It was just the most eerie silence and odd interactions. It sounded like he'd started driving a cab and had essentially invented a whole new art form, which was this kind of documentation of the underbelly, under the underbelly of American culture, this whole other place. In the war, pain was printed in great big letters on people's faces. You don't know what pain is. You only know it in small printed letters. packages were so dense I feel like I'm still going through them now I just poured one out onto the table and I had forgotten about this he remembered the cop that arrested him on that golf course that night when they were locking him in the cell 
he was reading their name tags and trying to make conversation. I think he probably didn't want to come off as crazy as he did. And here I'm looking through these piles and he followed this officer in the Auburn News. He says here, I'm actually a huge Gulf War syndrome buff. (laughs) What is that? So it looks like following the newspapers so incredibly closely, he just happened upon this officer, maybe because the guy was a veteran of the Gulf War. I have four newspaper clippings about this officer sitting in front of me. The first one says, local officer out with brain tumor. It's too strange. Anyone that came into his orbit would become cursed or enlightened or scarred for life. And here's this officer that he's saying here in this letter that they bonded (laughs) because the guy picked up this copy of the Satan seller that Duncan had given to my guru and he found it really interesting. I don't remember any of this. Well, the first clip says local officer out with brain tumor. So he's following the guy. The second clip says there's a blood drive for this officer. The Auburn Police Department is sponsoring a blood drive from 8 to 2 on Friday, August the 31st at First Congregational Church. Fucking blood drive. Then the third clip It's a picture of the officer fingerprinting little kids in elementary school. (laughs) Do you remember when they did that? They came to your school anticipating criminals to rise up in power and they fingerprinted you. Okay. And the fourth clip is an obituary for the death of the police officer. You can't help but read this and not come away with this sour feeling that this cop was cursed by encountering and jailing my friend. It's just the first thing you think. In his accompanying letter, he wrote this. I want to make clear, I'm not celebrating this. I actually feel really sad. He had a soft side. Something mushy passed between us. He was examining the Satan Cellar book and he liked it. Did he catch its metaphor? Did he understand that without sin, there would be no redemption? God, I love him, for he knowed not what he did.
when I was like 12, I opened up a Thrasher magazine and saw this article on Portland, Oregon, and it looked so burly, like it looked like something out of Mad Max. It was a black and white picture of some dude grinding this bowl in the most vicious way, and I just thought to myself, oh, uh, I'm never gonna live there. And then in the mid-90s, there was some sort of underground highway between Chapel Hill and Portland, Oregon, and these musicians kept leaving our town and coming back with heroin addictions from Portland, Oregon, one after the other. And they would tell tales of the strip club world and the suitcases exchanging hands in the back and falling in love with some stripper named Cinnamon. These just sordid, terrifying tales. And I was like, ugh, I'm never going to live there. I think this moment symbolizes a bit of a breaking point when you encounter a different culture 3,000 miles away. You better humble yourself. You better take a step back and recalibrate what it is you think you're such a fucking expert on. Or else you fall into the same aggressive, bitter pit that most American men (laughs) celebrate, which is just the rejection of anything new and the celebration of your own pointless anger. So being faced with a whole new culture is an opportunity for you to grow. But man, (laughs) every day was kind of like a battle. Like every new person I shook hands with looked at me like, fuck off, dude. And I don't even know if that was in my mind. I think we were both convinced Whatever culture that dude's from is ridiculous. And as I hit the couch, my girlfriend's brother kind of met me there. And he had told me, you know, if you come up here, we can get you on K Records easy. I was like, sounds great. But when I get there, you know, I realize he'd been struggling with all kinds of drug addiction for some years. And so instead of being like mad at him that he didn't know what he was talking about, I was like, well, you know, this is a great opportunity for us to enable each other and piss our lives away. Because when the hill is unsurmountable, at that age, it makes a lot of sense to just kick back and get as fucked up as possible. We kind of fell into a bit of a habit and... There were days where my girlfriend came home from work and saw us on the couch and just started crying. I think she thought there was more in store for us, but it didn't seem so. He had been working at a telemarketer, like a phone answering business, and I think it just walked out. We were pretty comfortable in our failure together, I think. So one day, 
he says, we got to get you a skateboard. He had apparently found that that was a decent way to travel after many DUIs. And I find myself with a skateboard again, and we're just kind of wobbling along this shit road. I believe it was Killingsworth. And the sun is beating down on us. The road is broken. We could barely roll 15 feet without hitting some gravel. It was that kind of like hungover bullshit day you hit when you're 22 and you're like, is there anything I'm qualified to do in this world? So we turn on to Alberta and we're going towards the taqueria that everybody apparently loves in Northeast Portland at that time. La Serenita and we're getting closer and I see Matt stop up ahead and he just sort of points to 28th Street and I follow him over and he leads me to this classic Portland house classic in that it's really kind of a rundown piece of shit and a small little man pops out the front door looks down at us and waves. He's a very gentle nerd. I think that's the way you would describe him. And Matt's like, I used to be in AA with this guy. His name's Brad. Totally unassuming, bookish kid. Takes us inside the house. Pretty quickly tells us he plays no instruments. He does not make music. And then leads us down to the basement where he has an entire music studio. A digital 8-track, a Slingerland drum set, a bass amp and a bass, and a guitar amp, and all sorts of noisemakers and Casio SK-1s and shit. And as soon as I see the basement, I'm like, um, I could, uh, make records here. Like, do you want to make records? And he's like, yeah, I play nothing, I just want to record. When do you want to come over? Strangely enough, I think that day is where my entire career started. Everything leads back to not going to the Taqueria and breaking off on 28th Street. If I hadn't have gone inside that kid's house, you would never have heard of me. It's the first time I've ever realized that even though I was confused that this kid would tell me, you know, move up here to this place you know nothing about and we'll get you on this label. And I'm like, am I mad at this guy? 
for sort of deceiving me. But then here we are, skating down the road on this terrible day, and he takes me into this house. Honestly, down in L.A., I hadn't picked up a guitar because music wasn't even applicable in that world. This is 1999. Encountering new music in L.A. was like having to drink straight bile. It was like an aesthetic apocalypse down there. You just have to trust me. I mean, when the stalker from Revenge of the Nerds 2 was trying to court me, he took me to a show, and he was like, you like music, let's go see some music. And he took me to the Rainbow Room to see some kind of local version of a slap funk Jane's Addiction bouncing around with the dreads, and (sighs) that's how little he was paying attention to anything I was saying. But L.A. is built to not take anything seriously. Whereas Portland was still super gnarly and real as fuck back then. So now I'm in this place where I have no excuse but to confront myself in front of all these people. I don't know. Not a fun idea, but I've got my new friend Brad now. We were babbling by his refrigerator And there was a picture of a guy with a Hawaiian lei on, which, because I wasn't looking closely, I kind of confused with some sort of Hare Krishna vibe, and it reminded me of Duncan. His head was shaved. Something's drawing me to this place. And he said, that's Alex. He records guitar here. So the setup for the rest of my life happened in those couple moments because Alex ended up forming the band Grails with me. And Brad recorded the first Holy Sons record I'd ever made that wasn't involving me alone on my four track that James ended up putting out. So it's odd looking back at how many important things happen in tiny moments. But more importantly, the fact that you dislodged from what you were comfortable with and you found yourself lost in a horrible frame of mind, fighting yourself in front of everybody around you, the fact that you dislodged and let yourself go there was the beginning of a new ground that you built everything on. That's what I take away from all that now.